Cool. So we're in the middle of this series uh, called Stand Out, and it's a look at uh, the book of First Peter. And, uh, and it's a look at how do uh, Christians uh, deal with uh, the stress and the challenge of living in a way that's a little bit different from the world around them. And this book was written to uh, Christians in Asia Minor, the part of the world we now call Turkey, fairly recently, uh, fairly shortly after the time period in which Jesus Christ rose from the dead and Christianity began to uh, spread through the Roman world. And, and as Christians uh, got to uh, know Jesus and, and came to follow him and give them their lives, in all of these places, they began to, of course, behave differently. There's a, a connection between our behaviors and, and our beliefs. And they began to behave differently. And as they behaved differently, of course, all kinds of challenges uh, came into their lives as they were living a little bit out of sync with their culture, a little bit out of sync. And, uh, and that's, of course, our, our story, too. We're a little bit out of sync. There's, uh, there's a stress that comes on us from sort of living in a, a situation like, like that. There's stress that, that can be on us, and, and stress can, can have a, a difficult effect on us. I'm not sure what's going on with the mic here while we're, while we're thumping away. It's stress. It's all stress. Um, and, uh, and, and stress can be, can be a big deal. A doctor, uh, you know, said to, said to this man, Fred, he said, Fred, uh, I have, I have bad news for you and worse news for you. Fred had gone to the doctor saying, I'm really stressed out. I, I've had a lot of stress in my life, and there's, there's things that are happening to me. I just, don't, I just don't feel right. And Fred went to the doctor and, and said, uh, doctor, please uh, look at me. And the doctor finally you know, took some tests and looked at Fred and said, Fred, I, I have bad news for you and worse news for you. And uh, Fred said, T tell me the bad news, doc. And well, the doctor says, the bad news is all the stress has caused you to have really high blood pressure, really high blood pressure, Fred. I'm quite concerned about it. And, and Fred said, okay, okay, I think you can handle that. Maybe medication, whatever it is, uh, we'll, we can deal with that. What's, uh, what's the worst news? What's the worst news? And the doctor said, I'm seeing signs that this is causing of severe memory loss in your life, severe memory loss. And Fred right away said, oh, memory loss, that's not so bad. At least I don't have high blood pressure. Um, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> stress causes us to have trouble uh, thinking. Stress has an impact on our on our cognitive function, on our on our ability to. That was a terrible joke, wasn't it? Uh, uh, it has a uh, uh, a problem uh, in terms of how we we function cognitively. Uh, there's a study on stress done in 2002 by uh, Dr. Ratya Sina, who's a professor of psychiatry and neurobiology at Yale. Uh, University School of Medicine, director of the Yale Stress Center. Um, and she published this report uh, saying that um, when you study the human body, and the way she did this study, it's quite, a, quite an interesting study, is um, she took a whole bunch of people that had already had uh, brain scans just for medical diagnostics for various other reasons uh, for diagnosis of cancer or whatever it is. Uh, it turned out to be negative diagnoses, but they had the brain scans on file. And then they followed these patients over a number of, of years and, and pulled out of the sample uh, 100 of them that had undergone significant stress or trauma in their lives subsequent to their first brain scan. 
And what they discovered in, the, in those 100 people who had uh, their brains scanned uh, after uh, undergoing stress and trauma was that in, in a high percentage of the cases, uh, the, their temporal cortex, their, or their, uh, their cerebral cortex, the front part right here, actually shrunk. So you should just be encouraged about that right away. Like if you're under s extreme stress, your brain is shrinking. That should be just encouraging to all of us. Uh, but stress impacts the way we think. It impacts the way we, we process this. This most vulnerable uh, part, the prefrontal cortex, uh, it impacts our emotions, our desires, our impulse control, and, and mostly our cognition. So a traumatic express li event like a job loss or medical diagnosis that was difficult uh, can affect a person's emotional intelligence. Um, and, and there's different areas of the prefrontal cortex that they notice different uh, res responses to those stimulus. So broader life traumas such as uh, living with a chronic condition or losing uh, s subsequent loved ones uh, can really affect the mood centers. Uh, but anyway, you should just be encouraged. If you're stressed, your brain is shrinking. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a deal. It's, it's an issue for us as people dealing with that. And, and that's what Peter's writing into. Of course, uh, folks in that time, you know, didn't have MRI machines or any of that, but they were under uh, incredible duress in that place. Uh, they were in a place where if they were uh, a woman who had become a Christian in her household, uh, your husband could use all means of control to bring you back into line. He could beat you. He could deprive you of food. He could take away your children. He could do all kinds of things. If he was a slave, he could beat you. He could kill you. He could do whatever he wanted to with you. Uh, as you as you become a Christian, you're you're under uh, that kind of duress. And, and Peter's writing into that. And he's saying to them that in the midst of this, don't give up hope. Don't give up hope and don't give up your faith. Don't give up this incredible thing that God is, is doing in you. Uh, hold on to your faith. Uh, don't, don't let it go. Uh, so how does God equip us to endure those challenges? How does God equip us to endure uh, whatever comes on us when we're stressed, when we're persecuted, when we're challenged, when we're living in a different place? And, and some of this is going to be unpacked in this passage, 1 Peter chapter 4. So let's just, uh, before we read the passage, just pray and invite the Holy Spirit to help. Uh, Lord, would you just come and help us? As we read this text, would you just open it up to us? Would you open it up to me in a fresh way, even the things that I've seen and studied, Father? Uh, direct my attention to something new and fresh, uh, even as we go here, Father. Uh, would you uh, speak through your word? Would you transform us? Would you prepare us? Would you... Uh, give us the tools that we need to move forward as people of faith. Come, Lord Jesus, uh, enlighten your word to us, we pray. Amen. Amen. So the text reads like this. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They're surprised that you do not join them 
in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. And these are just the pieces that Peter gives to encourage these Christians who are under stress. And so we can unpack them and and learn some things from what Peter said to those Christians. Uh, Therefore, since Christ suffered in the body, arm yourselves with the same attitude. Arm yourselves with the same attitude. That word attitude there is a Greek word, ennoian, which actually means thought. It's a word that actually means thought. So it's not just, it's not just attitude, it's, it's arm yourself with a different thought. Arm yourself with a different worldview. Arm yourself with uh, something that causes you to believe a different way, that causes you to see a different way, that there are thoughts that you can arm your mind with that enable you to undergo the challenges that are before you. Now, just a little illustration, just a way of helping us understand how our beliefs affect our actions. Uh, We look at almost everything through uh, the filter of our belief system. Almost everything that happens, our response to it is a result of that event and the belief system that we have. There's a stimulus, we filter it through what we believe, and then we respond to it. So this can work in different ways for you, different responses to different stimuli based on your belief system, right? It's very, very simple how we as humans operate. So a cashier gives you too much change. A cashier gives you too much change, and you're sitting at the, at going through the cash, and you're supposed to get a 10 back, and you get a 20 or, or something like that. And all of a sudden, you have 10 extra bucks. If your belief system says, wow, I'm so lucky, or even worse, says, God has really blessed me today. And you, you receive that extra $10, and, and you say to yourself, wow, that's amazing. God, you've blessed me. And you just walk right on out of the store celebrating the bounty of the Lord. God's so good to me. Or... The cashier gives you too much change, but because you're a believer, you you know that we can't keep what's not ours. Because we have integrity, we know that if if it's not ours, that that we we shouldn't keep it. And your belief system causes you to give the money back. So what are the stimuli in your life that your beliefs need to impact, that your beliefs need to cause a a different response in you from from the world, a different response in you from somebody who doesn't believe in Christ. What are those beliefs that you can arm yourself with? Well, where Peter starts here is, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Now, this seems like a strange and unusual way for Peter to encourage the church. If you're feeling stressed, just think about the crucifixion of Jesus. Well, that doesn't sound like a very happy image to me. I don't know if that doesn't sound like a very happy image to you, but when I think about stress, I do not want to think about my beloved Savior uh, dying on the cross. That, that, that just doesn't seem like the most encouraging picture for me. Does it for you? 
Of course, we know what it means, and of course, we, we, we do know that it means our salvation, but, but what is that we really see in how Jesus suffered? What is that we see in how he endured his suffering that, that impacts how we endure our suffering, how we endure suffering? Well, the first thing uh, that, that it says to us is, and, th- and this was really, really clear in the life of the early church, that Jesus' suffering caused them to understand that their suffering was not meaningless. That the struggle that they faced was, was not meaningless. Because what they understood from, from people uh, knowing what they knew about Roman gods and from Hebrews knowing what they knew uh, about the Hebrew God, this God who is high and holy, or in the case of the Roman and Greek gods, who were very, very distant and considered human beings just playthings, the idea of a God who would come to earth to endure suffering with them, for them what that added up to, for them what that equated to is God cares so much about what I'm going through that he wants to experience even that too. That he wants to experience even that too. He loves you so much. He wants to know every single part of your life. Every great thing, every celebratory thing, every victory you experience. And he also wants to experience every ounce of your suffering. And he drank it to the dregs on the cross. Now what God loves like that? We take encouragement from that. Our suffering isn't meaningless because it was meaningful to God. It was meaningful to God. The second thing that we take from what happened to Jesus on the cross is that uh, my suffering is something in which he joins me. You are never alone in your suffering. You are never alone in your suffering. You're never alone in your pain. You're never alone in the struggle. Now, when you are suffering, when you are struggling, uh, he enters into it with you, and he is right there beside you in it. He isn't distant, he isn't far away, and his comfort is available to you, and his love is available to you, and his presence is available to you. He is near you in your suffering. And the other thing they would have understood it to mean is that it doesn't mean you failed. Whenever you suffer, what, the, what Christianity and the forgiveness of Christ on the cross did for them was it made them understand that when they were suffering, they weren't suffering because God was punishing them. They weren't suffering because God was punishing them. Your suffering isn't a punishment from God because Jesus has forgiven you. Jesus has accepted you. Jesus has loved you. Jesus has embraced you. Now, when we look at uh, suffering, you know, sometimes we suffer because we've been faithful. I mean, sometimes we suffer because we've done dumb things. That's absolutely true. But that's not what Peter's talking about here. Sometimes we suffer, and in the case of the Christians in this time and space, they were suffering in many cases because they'd been faithful. Christ. They'd refuse to bow down and worship idols. They'd refuse to uh, maintain the, uh, the uh, area where they kept idols in the home and the family. They, they refused to, 
cook in certain ways and behave in certain ways and participate in, in certain behaviors that they now thought was immoral, uh, because they've been faithful and are walking out of step with their culture in some ways, uh, they were suffering. It wasn't because of something they'd done against God. It was because of something they'd done for him. Second, some stuff happens that is absolutely out of our control, right? Sickness and pain and abandonment happens just because we live in a broken world. Just because we live in a broken world. And sometimes what we're encountering is not just uh, the evil of living in a broken world in that sense of, of uh, sort of passively living in this broken place, but, but sometimes we encounter supernatural evil. Sometimes we encounter evil that is uh, intentional and active in trying to tear you down. Uh, early Christians believed that there was God and there was angels and that there were evil spiritual powers that were messing with things behind the scenes and, and making things difficult. We have to believe in a supernatural universe to understand suffering. Uh, maybe a good way to describe it is, is like this. Um, how many of you have ever just played a team sport of any kind? You know when it's time for a practice, and I'm sure it's actually going to be like this for hockey for the men tonight, that... that that uh, when, when the men are out playing hockey, it's not uh, a serious game. I'm sure nobody will get hurt or bumped or, or anything like that. It's probably not true, actually. As much violence probably will happen. Uh, but uh, when you're practicing for a game, for football or whatever it is, you know, there's rules. You, you might be wearing lighter equipment. You're, you're throwing the ball with the team. The quarterback's making every catch because the defenders are there to pretend they're defending and let that quarterback make every catch. And, and when you're practicing, you know, uh, injuries don't happen so much on the field for a football player uh, when, when he's at a practice. But when the game is real, you're playing with another team on the field. And you're going to take some hits. And you're going to take some hits. And so Peter is speaking to Christians and saying, um, you know, when you look at the cross, when, when you look at what happened to Jesus, um, there were other players on the field there. And, and we could have a, a long discussion about how free will works and how uh, humanity's choices impact how that spiritual world works and, and all of that to, to have a sort of an evolved understanding of, of how we deal with suffering. But, but there's another team on the field. That's why we need the grace of God. That's why we need healing. That's why we need miracles. That's why we need all that. And then the fourth thing uh, about us taking the cross and the understanding of what happened there and, and bringing it into our lives, bringing it forward into our lives so that we understand suffering is that suffering for Jesus and suffering for us is not the end of the story. It's not at all the end of the story. Now, if we looked at uh, the suffering Jesus, and we imagined where he was at, uh, hanging on the cross um, and, and dying in that space, and we didn't have the story of the resurrection, it would be a very different sermon that I'm giving you now. But, but you need to know as a Christian, uh, when you're suffering, that that's not the end of the story. Now, when we are suffering, when we are struggling, 
if you're like me, it's really, really hard to see that. Your brain is shrinking and your cognitive ability is, is, is underwhelming when you're overwhelmed. But you need to know in that moment that someday you'll understand. And someday you'll see and someday you'll know. Uh, in the middle of suffering, it's always mystifying. In the middle of suffering, it's always painful. In the middle of suffering, uh, it's always perplexing. But you know that at the end, uh, you're going to understand. At the end... Uh, God is coming. That's the message that we've come to bring, that, that God is coming to restore the earth. God is coming to bring healing. God is coming to bring hope. He's going to take this whole planet and he's going to re-enter it and rebuild it and reshape it and make it new. He's going to come into every human body uh, that believes in him and resurrect it and rebuild it and make it new. This is not the end of the story. Suffering is not the end of the story. And so this is the first thing that Peter says. Arm yourselves also with uh, these thoughts. Arm yourselves also with these thoughts. And then not only that, he adds this, uh, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Now, we have heard lots of bad teaching over the centuries in the church about how suffering is somehow inherently good how suffering is inherently somehow more spiritual, how suffering is inherently somehow making you more holy. Uh, we don't believe that's true. Uh, that is an ancient heresy called Gnosticism that brought its way forward into the church from the idea that everything spiritual is good and everything material is bad. Uh, it's a heresy. We don't believe that is true at all, and way, the way it worked itself out in the life of the early church was in an extreme asceticism, so that uh, believers believed that if you sat on a giant pole that was 30 feet in the air and were naked up there and you didn't eat any food or drink any water for days, you were somehow more holy and closer to God. Um, we know that's not true, Right? We know that we don't initiate suffering in our lives to somehow make God like us more. We know that's not true. That's not what we believe about suffering. But we do believe that if our beliefs are tuned to Jesus when we suffer, that suffering is robbed of its victory by producing something good and awesome in our lives. Right? God wins. God wins even in our suffering. And let me just, just, just chase a little rabbit for, for a little second. We as charismatic Christians, Christians who believe that God does miracles, when, when we preach on suffering and teach on suffering, uh, we have this idea that there's somehow... We can't focus on suffering too much because it will somehow uh, ruin our ability to, to move in faith. That the suffering and the endurance of suffering is somehow counter to a belief in miracles and God intervening in practical ways. For the early Christian, that was utter nonsense. Uh, the early Christian didn't believe that at all. The early Christian saw on one hand, God may deliver me miraculously uh, from this sickness, from this sin, from whatever it is happened. That's an absolute awesome miracle where God will enter into my sickness and pain and suffering. And that is absolutely awesome and wonderful. That one of them is not a lesser miracle at all in the mind of the early Christian. 
It is an absolute miracle that God delivers us and heals us and, and does supernatural work among us. And it is absolutely a miracle that he enters into our suffering and transforms us. Uh, one is not less than the other. Uh, they saw them as equal. They saw it as a clear both ends. So just a side note there. Uh, both can be absolutely awesome. But how does that work? How does that work when we're suffering and when we're struggling and when we're going through pain and, and trying to endure it? How does God transform us and how does God make us new in that? Uh, there's lots of places in the scriptures where it talks about it. In James, consider it pure joy where you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. That there's a maturing process that happens when we endure suffering with the right thought life, with the right attitudes. That that's, that's a piece of the picture, but... But even more simply than that, you know, when we're suffering, when, when, when we're enduring pain, I don't know if it, what your experience has been like, but, but when I've been in places like that, um, I just reach the end of myself. I just reach the end of my ability to deal. I reach the end of my ability to fix it. I reach the end of my ability to be tough. I reach the end of my ability to change my circumstances. And I absolutely have to cry out to God. I absolutely have to cry out to God. And you can choose in that moment of suffering, will you cry out to God and invite him and his resources and his authority and his power into your circumstances to help you? And if you do that, your world will expand and you will become brighter and you will become bigger and you will become better. Or you can lock yourself off in that moment and become angry with God and say, God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you doing this to me? And you close yourself off from community with other Christians and you close yourself off from God and those resources don't flow and you become bitter. And you have this choice in life every single time you're suffering. And I know so many of your incredible stories of, of, of people in this place who have chosen life and chosen not to be bitter. Those people in, in, in this place who have chosen joy, who have chosen to cry out to God, who have chosen to fall in love with him again from the deepest and darkest and most painful parts in their lives, be it uh, a broken and wounded marriage, be it a, a place of sickness, be it a place of, of persecution from someone in your family who refuses to accept you as a Christian, whatever it is, you can choose in that moment, will you become a bigger person or will you become a bitter person? Suffering uh, transforms us. Suffering can make us new if we we accept that opportunity if we accept that uh, God moving in our lives in that way and it says this in verse 2 as a result they do not live the rest of their earthly eyes for evil human desires but rather for the will of God and you know when you find the end of yourself and one, one, sometimes when you're suffering you just don't have time to sin like sometimes you're just too busy coping to go and get that extra hamburger that you really really want I know that one uh, occasionally, I've been in that space. Uh, just act, just a little bit of suffering is bad for me because I can go and get that hamburger. Uh, but uh, uh, when we, when we suffer and when you're when you're struggling and when you've invited Jesus into the midst of, of you and you, and you realize that He's 
beside you in that moment, in your suffering, the will of God looks completely different when uh, the suffering of Christ, when the suffering Christ is right beside you with his arm around your shoulder. Doesn't the will of God look different when the suffering Christ is right beside you? When Jesus who died on the cross for your sins, when you're aware of him, doesn't his will look different? All of a sudden his will isn't uh, for uh, all of your, I mean, it's not nothing wrong with prosperity, nothing wrong with, with, with any of those wonderful, wonderful gifts he, he gives us, but, but doesn't his ultimate will look different when the God who died for your sins and has a message to proclaim to the world through you is sitting right beside you in your suffering? It absolutely does. And that's all that Peter is saying there. Goes on, says, For you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness. And he goes on. I'm going to unpack these one at a time. But what he does is he breaks how our understanding of suffering uh, impacts us into the past and the present and the future. The past and the present and the future. And so this first one he deals with is the past. For you've spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, uh, living in debauchery. That word debauchery there is underlined in the text. It's, it's a Greek word that's ephemeus that, that we see translated in most of our scriptures, most of our, um, our, our older versions of the scriptures, we see that translated as the lusts of the flesh. The lusts of the flesh. And, and, and the problem is that, that uh, understanding of it as we look at it is a little bit too limited. Even that word debauchery is a little bit too limited because we immediately think of, of sexual immorality when we think about those words. But, but it's worth uh, diverting for just a second to talk about the broader understanding of that word, which really means uh, an over-desire for something. It really means too much desire. It means an over-desire. You can have an over-desire for very good things as a Christian. Now, most of you as Christians who've been Christians for a long time aren't going out there and just thinking to yourself, man, I just really wish I could have an affair this week. I think that would be just fantastic if I could find someone to have an affair with. We don't have a, a, a desire that's way out of control for something like that. We don't go around thinking to ourselves, you know what, I'm going to take up crack. I, I, I'm going to take up smoking crack. I, I, I really think that's, that's something that's going to be great for me. Uh, most of us who are mature Christians don't get into that place, but we do get into places of trouble, starting with small things, and it's often an over-desire an obsessive desire for something that's basically a good thing. And you know tons of examples of that in your life. The example of, of someone who's, uh, who's having a, a problem with a temptation with another relationship, maybe a, an emotional affair that's, that's going on with somebody in your workplace. And as a pastor, I hear these stories. It doesn't start with, man, I think I'll have an affair today. Yeah, I'll put that on my calendar. What it starts with is, is I have a need, and, and, and I really want that need to be met. And then that desire for that need to be met becomes an obsessive desire for that need to be met. And it's when that desire grows over the desire, a, a small desire for that need to be met can, can easily be translated into, man, I should call a counselor, I should speak to my wife, I need help to fix this relationship. But when an over-desire for that need to be met begins to take place in our hearts, uh, that's when we, we begin to compromise our values to meet the need. 
And the same is true with substances. The same is true with alcohol. The same is true with a lot of other things that might be good things, but an over-desire for those things gets us in tremendous trouble. And so that's what he's talking about. He's saying, you've had enough of that. Your understanding of the suffering of Christ is like, man, you've had enough of that. You know what Jesus paid for. You know what Jesus dealt with. You know what Jesus did on the cross. You, you don't get into that. Don't, don't get into that over-desire, that obsessive desire for things. Uh, this, this will of God that's understood uh, through the framework of the suffering Christ uh, makes all the difference in how we deal with our, with our over-desires, with our lusts, with our epithemias, our lust of the flesh that deals with it. So that's the past. You're, you're not drawn into those uh, old things anymore. You've, you've left them behind. And then people are surprised that you do not join them in, your reckless, in their reckless while living. But uh, they, they heap abuse on you. You know as Christians, and, and some of you are probably wrestling with this decision, this is probably a really important piece for you as you are here and deciding if you want to follow Jesus. Um, are you really willing to make a break with your society. This, this phrase, uh, do not join them in their recklessness, it, it actually means do not run with them. You're not running with the same crowd anymore. You're not running the way they run. You're not running that way. And, and we are under enormous pressure, some of us, especially you, if you're here and you are early in your journey uh, of trying to decide if you want to follow Jesus, there are people in your life who are, are speaking to you and, and saying, hey, don't leave us behind. Don't, don't, don't stop hanging with us. Don't stop smoking pot with us. Don't stop doing uh, this, this stuff with us. Don't, don't, don't give that up. Don't believe something different about human sexuality. Believe what we believe and, and act how we act. If you're here in this place and you're wrestling with this question, of, of how your belief in Christ affects your present, affects your present decision about how you live, you need to know that the, the suffering Jesus has something for you in that moment as you make that decision. He has his presence. He has his comfort. He has his life. He has his light. He calls you not to that stuff, but it's not just not to that stuff. It's a call to himself. It's a call to relationship. It's a call to his presence. It's a call to a friendship with him that, that endures forever. And every need that ha- you had met uh, through uh, those other ways will be met in him, will utterly be met in him, and will be utterly understood from that perspective. If you're a Christian and, and, and you're living in such a way that, that nobody sees a difference, that nobody is, is heaping a little bit of abuse on you, you should be taking a little abuse. Not to glory in it, not, not to make you feel like it validates you as a person, but, but there should just be areas where you're decoupled from your culture a little bit. And you have to wrestle with that as, as people. And then he ends with this, this last uh, phrase. Um, he says, but they will have to give account 
to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So how does this encourage us as, as people? How does this encourage us as people? We are, uh, for the most part, middle class, middle, uh, you know, sort of middle in terms of the demographic of where people are at in terms of money. We're very affluent here in North America. We live in a suburban society. The, the, the struggles that we live with and that we deal with, when we think that God is coming to judge as a solution, is a solution, is something that is supposed to encourage us. Does that, does that encourage you? We don't, find, we don't find that encouraging, but you need to know that for the most part, people who live on this planet and have lived on this planet in the past, the problem for them wasn't with the idea of finding a loving God and understanding and wrestling with the question, well, if God is, is loving, how can he judge? The, the problem in most of the world is with this question, if God is loving, how can he not judge? If God is loving, how can he not judge? I'm going to tell you a story from uh, a book called The Good News About Injustice, which is obviously a very strange title by a man named Gary Haugen, who's the founder of International Justice Mission. And part of his job, part of this passion that he wrote this book out of and part of the passion that he started uh, this ministry out of was that he had a job in the United States where part of his job was to take a, a national look from the perspective of the Justice Department and work on a task force that the abuse of, uh, of authority by, by police. Abuse of authority by police. And he tells this story in his book. He, he tells the story of a young girl who had run away from home and gone into a, gone into a city and, uh, and was just trying to find her way in the city. And she was walking down the street one night in a, uh, in a part of town where she shouldn't have been in. And a police car rolls up beside her and the police officer steps out and says, girl, this is not a, not a safe place for you to be. This is, this is not a good place for you to be here. Uh, hop in the car and we'll take you somewhere safe. And, and she hopped this little girl in the back of this police car and they took her to a hotel and the, the police officer went into the, the thing and, and paid for the room and, and walked her uh, up, up, to the, up the stairs and, and into the room and, and unlocked the door for her. And at the moment where she expected that this police officer would hand her the key and let her go in, to this incredible place of safety, the police officer pushed her in the door and shut the door behind him. And he pushed her down onto the bed and he raped her. And this little girl, in, in the moment of her agony and in the moment of her pain, uh, heard another knock on the door and the other police officer came and she thought, oh my goodness, I'm saved. Thank goodness I'm saved. And the other police officer raped her as well. And they took this little girl when they were done with her and they walked her down the steps into the police cruiser and they opened the door and put her in the back and took her to an alley in the street back in the same bad part of town where they picked her up and threw out of the car and left her in the alley and drove away. Now, you tell me how a loving God cannot judge you tell me how a loving God cannot judge the evil in this world. He is a loving God. 
He is a forgiving God. He is a gracious God. And he is a judge. The abuser always thinks. The abuser always thinks his abuse is not seen. That nobody sees it. But I tell you, God sees it. God sees it. And he will judge. And our place as human beings, our place as Christians, is to choose Uh, For our sins, be they much lesser in some cases as it would seem to that story which I've just told you. Our place as people is to choose, will that judgment fall on us? Or will that judgment that we deserve fall on Christ? Because God is not only a judge who sees and who knows, but he is a judge who owns it. He is a God who, if we will be willing to trust him, if we would be willing to call out to him, if we would be willing to accept the gift of forgiveness and grace that he pours out on us, that he will take the judgment that we're due. And every one of us, uh, we may not have, have done something like this story that we've told, but every one of us in our selfishness, and in our self-centeredness and in our brokenness has cost another human being something far beyond our ability to pay for it. We've cost other human beings something. And will we choose to let Jesus carry that cost for us? Or will we proudly say, I don't want anything to do with you, Jesus. You take it. You take your gift and you keep it. I'm carrying this myself. Will we accept him or will we not? And God, uh, in in through Second Peter or through First Peter here, uh, he explains this just a little bit further in verse six. He says, "For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body." but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. He's laying out this choice. Do you want to deal with this uh, in Jesus' spiritual way or do you want to deal with this in a human way? And he says, says, I'm a fair God. Everybody gets a chance to choose. Everybody gets a chance to choose to accept his grace and his forgiveness or not. To accept it or not. And then he ends uh, with this. The end of all things is near. This is the final encouragement to the Christian that's undergoing suffering, that's dealing with suffering. And similar to what we talked about before, uh, Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. We talked about this uh, in, in the last couple of days, in the last couple of weeks around Easter. Jesus is coming again. He's coming again. He is taking this planet. He is taking this world. He is coming to live in it. He is coming to dwell in it. He is coming to remake it, to reshape it, to make it new. He's coming to you, to your life, to reshape you and to make you new. He's coming again. This suffering is not the end of the story. This is Jesus' happy ending. Everything gets fixed. Everything gets better everything gets made new and this includes me and this includes you and this is the end of his very very good story
And so this question uh, is before us this morning. Will we accept this God who judges evil, who judges evil by taking it on himself if we so accept it? Will we accept him? Will we choose him? Will we choose him, come what may? Will we choose him even though it makes us out of sync with our culture? Will we choose him even though we don't understand how that works? We don't even understand in this moment how our relationships will work, how, how it will work with our coworkers, how it will work with our, our associates, how it will work with our business uh, friends, how it will work with our school friends. We don't understand how it will work exactly. What suffering will come on us, what struggle will come on us, what we're dealing with, we, we don't know. But will you accept? that God who loves you? Will you accept that God who saves you? Will you accept that one who is coming to make you new? Let's stand up. Father, we have some stress to deal with. We have so many struggles. We have struggles in our marriages. We have struggles uh, in our homes. We have struggles in our workplaces. There are ways in which you're calling us to live that are out of sync with the world around us. But we put our trust in you. We put our faith in you. We put our hope in you. Would you come and speak to us and set our minds on the cross that we could understand that in our suffering you dwell with us, that that it's meaningful to you, that you're present to us. And we would understand, uh, Lord, what you understood in that moment. We would understand, Father, that this is not the end of the story. Would you let us be people who think differently? Would you let us be people who live differently? Father, would we live relative to your cross, relative to you, relative to your presence? Would we live uh, in a completely different way because of your goodness? Cause us to stand out, God. Cause us to stand out, God. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.